Hello, and welcome to Rotating Reels, the film review podcast where we alternate between new releases and favorites recommended by the co-hosts. I'm one of your co-hosts, Hank Showalter, and I'm calling in from Seattle, Washington. Joining me once again is only one of your two usual co-hosts, Keegan Tran. Taylor can't join us. But anyway, Keegan is joining us from Portland, Oregon. Desert power! <laughs> yeah, so uh, that desert power is Keegan's reference to our, our review for this week. We are reviewing Dennis Villeneuve's movie, Dune. It's uh, just come out on HBO Max and in theaters. Um, I'd recommend going to check it out. But before we get into why I'd recommend going to check it out, uh, we've got a few orders of business. So, first up, just got to remind y'all, we have a Patreon. If you want to check it out, go to rotatingreels.com. And uh, we have a Patreon-exclusive sideshow that's Rotating Reels After Hours. It's like Rotating Reels, but a little bit more zany, um, and it's not strictly film reviews, though it is maybe majority film reviews. We like talking film. (laughs) Um, Anyway, if you want to support us, feel free to head over there, and uh, I believe uh, you can get access to Rotating Reels After Hours for five bucks a month, but you can choose to donate uh, as much or as little as, uh, as you like or as you think we deserve. Um, so that's one of our orders of business. Our other order of business uh, is going to be given to you by Keegan Tran, and it's very exciting. All right. So I have a, a for some of us. Oh, sorry. So I have I have some news. I'm so excited. I had to interrupt Hank. Uh, so some news about the show that we are very excited about. Um, so for all the listeners, as you know, the structure of our show as it has been uh, in our release schedule is we record and release a new episode every week. Um, and try to put out one or two Patreon After Dark episodes every month. Uh, But what that means is that we regularly have three plus hour recording sessions on a weekly basis. And it just isn't super feasible for the three of us to be able to maintain that going forward. Um, and so as you guys have already noticed, Taylor has been able, er, has had to miss a lot of episodes lately. Um, And this new structure that we're gonna do alleviates a lot of those pains. Um, So firstly, Taylor works in financial services, has a huge demand for the work that he's been doing, and he moved from having a full-time job to a job that takes 1.5 or 2.5 full-time jobs worth of time. Um, Personally, uh, my news is that I've been brought on as a film and television writer at Collider, which is dream gig for movie nerds like us. Uh, The idea that a movie website is liking my writing enough to pay me to regularly do it is still kind of unreal to me. Um, And Hank is also going to be pursuing some creative endeavors. Hank? Yeah, so as I've mentioned uh, on some previous shows, I'm a big fan of tabletop role-playing games. Um, And currently, I'm actually in in the midst of running or playing three separate weekly games, which is a ton of prep time, um, as well as just a ton of playtime. I really love doing that. And I'm actually looking to kind of expand that hobby by moving into doing some some writing for publication myself, not strictly just uh, for for stuff at my tables. So uh, when and if uh, that stuff ever makes it to the printing press, you can hear about it here on Rotating Reels uh, when we are uh, doing our new format. There you go. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's what we're all so doing. Yeah, Hank's going to have some writing you can check out. I'm going to have some writing you can check out. Taylor should hopefully be around a little bit more often. Um, And the way that we're hoping to do that is to change the show to be more like an audio newsletter. Um, And the idea is that the show Rotating Reels will be a place where people who enjoy listening to us talk about movies could tune in to hear reviews, news, and industry interviews. So instead of the weekly hour-long reviews, 
we're hoping to move over to release uh, episodes once per month that are closer to two to two and a half hours in length. And each episode is going to have a core review of a movie that's either, you know, just come out or one of us recommended, similar to the old structure. Given that we're heading into Oscar season, we're probably going to do a couple months of main, uh, like, uh, new releases. Uh, we're also going to have a news segment, and hopefully we'll be joined by one of my new Collider colleagues, someone that's been very gracious and welcoming onto the writing team. Uh, hopefully that person can join us for those. Uh, we're still going to have what we've been watching, an extended version of it. And each episode will also have an interview with an industry insider. So in the past, we reviewed Richard Shankman, Bao Tran, uh, you know, actors from Prospect, ton of great industry insiders, specifically from the Northwest, it seems, but people that have a lot of great insight into what it is to make movies in, in the, the current age. So hopefully these all will culminate in a large episode that'll be very, very easy to consume and have a lot of news content packed into it all in once. But I can hear what you're saying already, right? Hey guys, I'm a patron. I, I pay you guys five bucks a month to get access to the after hours. What happens to me now? Don't worry guys. Uh, even though we're gonna be doing this massive episode drop on the main channel, hopefully what we're gonna be doing is releasing all of those different sections. So industry interviews, news updates, and a main review. All of those are gonna be recorded in one evening. And there's gonna be a lot of fat that has to be trimmed in editing, right? So. Hopefully we have a kind of more unedited version where you get to hear some spillover and some more casual conversations that we're having, probably some warm-up conversations with our guests, a lot more just of a casual version. So the version of the episodes that you'll be getting for after hours are gonna be closer to maybe even three hours, who knows? The idea here is that as we switch to this review version, or sorry, this version that isn't solely focused on reviews, we can record over one night for an extended period of time for about three, three and a half hours, cut it together over editing and upload it and basically spend the rest of the week or the rest of the month just prepping for it as opposed to now where we currently have to really, really quickly churn out new content. So I'm very excited about this. I think it's going to be a very good product. Hank, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the new format, it's going to be dope. It's going to be polished. Uh, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, a little bit more maybe unique than our current format. Not that our current format's bad, but uh, I'm always excited to change it up. And I think in terms of time commitment, it's going to be easier for us. And for those viewers that like to listen to something, you know, kind of nonstop, they're going to be getting bigger content deliveries, um, admittedly slightly less often. Um, so I think it's going to be kind of a win-win-win. I'm into it. There you go. Low frequency, high severity, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's some insurance talk for those of you not in the know. <laughs> so with all that said, uh, this week we're sticking with the usual format of a film review. Before we get to that film review, we're going to give you our what we've been watching. So for those of you that don't know, uh, every week the co-hosts go over what they've been watching on uh, TV and movies. Uh, we usually give them about three minutes. Uh, since we're missing a co-host, Keegan and Tran are going to talk for as long as we damn well please. And we're going to love Keegan it. Keegan and Tran. So, with that said, <laughs> Keegan, why don't you lead us into uh, what you've been watching? All right. So a couple things. Uh, I started, no, not started. I re-picked up Ted Lasso season two. Uh, I had watched the first half and then I actually dropped off because I wanted to binge the rest of the season when I knew it was all going to be complete. Uh, and Ted Lasso season two is wrapped now. So I had about four episodes to binge through. Uh, it was great. I don't know how far everyone is, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Ted Lasso season two is much different than Ted Lasso season one. 
it's much more of a character study. It's much more uh, real and honest with a lot of the characters' emotions, and I think uh, really becomes kind of a writer's exercise in a way that the first season was very uh, slapsticky and more comedy. Uh, and I love it. I, I finished the entire season. I cannot wait for a season three. Um, this is this is up there with like Twin Peaks and Arrested Development for me. This is probably one of my favorite television shows of all time. Um, and I'm just so happy to all of our patrons that subsidize my Apple TV Plus subscription so I can keep watching this this excellent show. Um, <laughs> so if you haven't watched Ted Lasso, start it right now. Uh, get Apple TV Plus. I'm sure you have bought an Apple product or a PlayStation product or something in the past few months that has a trial, like an extended three-month trial that you should absolutely be taking advantage of. Um, I also watched a movie on Hulu called Odalengi and the... Oh my god, what is it called? <laughs> Odalengi and the Cakes of Versailles. Uh, so kind of in theme with the movie we watched for the previous episode, which is Last Duel, uh, a movie about French uh, pastries. It's about a, a pastry chef in New York, very world famous, kind of on the level of like your your Bourdain's. He's a pretty household name, Odalengi. Um and he is reached out to by the Met, and they are going to be having an exhibit on Versailles and a lot of the French artwork of that time. And they want him to acquire a team of other pastry chefs. They're going to make all of the kind of hors d'oeuvres for the entire event. So it's kind of like a spy movie in that the first half of the movie is him going through Instagram and finding all these really unique, interesting pastry chefs across the entire world sending them contracts, asking if they'll come all the way to New York to cook in this giant kitchen together. And it's cooking for a real event at the Met in New York, but it also kind of has that fun, like Great British Baking Show and that they're all under a time pressure to make their fun, unique versions on, you know, what the, the task is at hand is to make something that's French themed. So they bring in, you know, a baker from uh, Ukraine who makes very like mathematical architectural designs. They bring in a woman from Singapore who makes very, like uh, very modern Asian desserts, uh, a couple guys from Britain. It's just very, very interesting watching these guys work under pressure and how like baking has grown over the years. And they talk to like um, anthropologists who have studied baking like historically. So there's really, really cool history. Like if you're into any baking show at all, it's really great, crazy high production values. And it's, it's on Hulu. So you likely already have access to this movie. Um, I would say it kind of drops the ball in the in the third act when they finally unveil the cakes. Uh, it's they don't really talk about like the flavor of it or the cake stuff. They mostly talk about like the event at the Met, and it almost feels like a commercial for that, more of like uh, a showpiece for the bakers. But regardless, there's still really fun stuff here, and it's just it, it's almost like a nice wallpaper to keep playing in the background. So I loved it. Um, and the last thing that I watched is. <laughs> I went to a press screening of Antlers, which is the new movie um, by Searchlight, and it's actually set in Oregon. It's a, a modern horror movie starring Jesse Plemons and, um, oh my god, I'm blanking on her name. I was not prepared at all, guys. Can you tell? Carrie Russell. Uh, they're both really good in this movie. Um, so <laughs> I went to this press screening. It was in the middle of a Tuesday. Didn't really expect to get invited to this went and uh i was very excited for this movie i've been talking friend of the show carlos we've been pursuing this movie for like two three years because it's in production hell we've always joked like it's gonna be a fun rainy northwest horror movie and we we're really excited we, i used to live in seattle and we were gonna watch it together and release so i go to this press screening they raffle off some t-shirts whatever we're all just kind of sitting around uh we get about an hour into the movie and i'm i'm 
very, very bored. And I actually dozed off in the movie theater and kind of in a slump just start sleeping. And I wake up and I'm like, I'm watching a character get killed on screen. And I go, oh my God, this feels pretty big. That was, I thought that was our main character. So I I pull up my phone. I'm still a little groggy. I was just, just woken up. So I, I pull up, I'm trying to read the plot synopsis on Wikipedia to see what I missed in my little nap. And as I'm doing this, the searchlight PR guy sees my phone light and walks over, tells me to turn off my phone. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Shut my phone off. Spend the rest of the movie just completely baffled. I have no idea what happened in that middle sequence, which was supposedly integral to the plot. Uh, but what I can say about the oh, <laughs> what I can say about the rest of the plot is that this movie is not very good, and uh, most critics will tell you that it's not really worthwhile. Uh, I thought this was going to be like the Hank Hank and I movie where we could bond over like a fun Northwest uh, horror movie, and it unfortunately was not that movie. And the worst part about the whole experience is that <laughs> after the credits started rolling, the uh, searchlight PR guy was waiting by the door, holding it open for everyone, and he was like, "What did you think?" excellent movie right it was excellent and i just had to hear all these these poor people uh lie to him and say yeah sure yeah it was good um so i'm I'm very sorry to say that i did not enjoy antlers and it seemed like my theater did not enjoy antlers either i feel like hank was probably excited for this so uh a very weird way to round out my watch week oh man i was excited for that i'm really kind of heartbroken to hear (laughs) that um not entirely surprised because i've seen the trailers yeah but a little bit heartbroken um oh man okay i guess with that i will kind of (laughs) dejectedly get into my what i've been watching um so uh anyway month of october big horror month been watching a lot of werewolf movies because me and my girlfriend do themed months um werewolf movies and tv shows i should say uh but this last week of october uh we fell off uh just a little bit because we both had really busy personal and work schedules um so unfortunately not going to have a ton of werewolf content but i am going to have a little bit up top that is teen wolf the tv show i've continued watching it um and uh in, in our last week i think i talked a little bit about how unexpectedly competent the show is And I still think that's the case, though I will say there have been some character developments in the last few episodes. I'm still on, like, the second season. Um, But anyway, there have been some character developments in the last few episodes that have made me a bit more lukewarm on it than I was before. Uh, There's just some characters that I'm I'm, I'm really getting tired of seeing. And I was thinking when I started watching, like, man, maybe I'll watch all of Teen Wolf. And now I'm like, Teen Wolf better get its shit together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is never something I thought I'd have to say. Um, But besides that, I've been also continuing to watch uh, Blacklist with, uh, what's-his-face, Robert California. I have no idea what his actor's name is. Um, I I, I don't feel bad about that, though. He's always Robert California to me. Even when me and my girlfriend are talking about the show Blacklist, I refer to his character as Robert California. (laughs) Um, But uh, anyway... Continue watching Blacklist. It has kind of gone the opposite direction of of Teen Wolf. I've gotten a little bit beyond where I think I watched it in high school, and I'm like, wow, they started to find their feet. Like, I still don't at all agree with some of the messaging in the show. I think it's it's kind of copaganda, um, but uh, it's it's pretty fun to watch. You know, I'll uh, I, I I guess I'll give him a pass. You know, I, I I really love seeing Robert California just shooting the shit out of some bad guys. Um. So anyway, that's Blacklist. 
Um, besides that, also continued what, watching What We Do in the Shadows. I normally kind of, uh, you know, shine on What We Do in the Shadows for a bit. I'm not going to this time. Not because it's not good, but the last episode just, just shocked me to my core, and I can't talk anymore about it without, uh, without spoiling something. Um, besides that, there's also a new season airing of Bob's Burgers. Been keeping up with that. I mean, it's Bob's Burgers. It's great. I, I don't I don't need to say too much about Bob's Burgers. Either you know it or you don't. And if you don't, then uh, you live a sad, sad <laughs> life. Uh, um, also, new season that's airing, Great British Bake Off on Netflix. Uh, I love watching those Brits bake. Um, I love baked goods. I love seeing baked goods. And it's been really satisfying this season. They're having another socially distanced season, which is always kind of kind of funny. But uh, anyway, you know, it's all all the same faces I love. Uh, you know, I, I, I know and love the hosts and the, the judges at this point, and we seem to have a pretty fun group of folks competing this season. So uh, just wanted to call out Great British Bake Off is up, is up on that TV. It should be on yours, too. Uh, besides that, uh, one of my favorite series of all time, I Think You Should Leave. Over the past week, I've rewatched it almost a dozen times. Um, because I've had a lot of times where I've just like needed something on the TV while I was doing something in the background, whether it was cleaning or, I don't know, texting or something. Anyway, I watched a ton of I Think You Should Leave, and I'm confident at this point that if someone were to put it on for me, I could speak along with every line in the show. Um, so that's been pretty great. And the last thing on my watch list is another thing I've seen before. Man, I just have a ha- habit of rewatching <laughs> stuff, I guess. Um, but uh, I've been rewatching Death Note because oh, my nice. girlfriend's never seen it before, and I love Death Note. Uh, I think the animation's cool. I think the plot's kind of fun. It's uh, kind of tonally different than what I'm used to from anime. Like it's still kind of like shown in anime, um, but it, it's also kind of unique within that space. Anyway, I love Death Note. If you like dark anime, totally check it out. Um, if you don't like dark anime, it's probably not for you. Um, and yeah, that's the last thing on my what I've been hey, watching. Hey, you, you said Death Note, then you said animation. Are you talking about... There's no animation in the movie that's set in Seattle, made for Netflix? I, I don't think that's an anime movie, bud. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Well, I do. I, that, that I have was... some real follow-ups for some, some stuff you watched. So, have you, have you finished Ted Lasso <laughs> Season 2? No, I think you should because Sam Richardson, who is featured in a lot of Tim Robinson stuff, he's the the baby boy pageant announcer. The oh, I know Sam Richardson, wonderful actor. He was oh, Werewolves Within, which you just watched as well. He's hilarious. Yeah, Werewolves Within. He yeah. is heavily featured in season the the latter half of season two of Ted Lasso. He's phenomenal in it as always. Say no there more. You go. You're in. I'm there. <laughs> I'm there for it. Last thing I have to sell you on is, uh, I don't know how this hasn't come up because you've been watching Teen Wolf for like three weeks, but I actually have a high school friend who has, I don't want to say multiple, I will say uh, for sure has at least one tattoo from Teen Wolf MTV. So I don't know if that speaks to the quality or the insanity of my high school friend, but uh, I don't know. I guess I'll leave it at that. (laughs) I, I can only say that I sincerely hope I never meet that friend. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but no i mean i kid i'm enjoying teen wolf well enough i might have some interesting talking points with that friend um but (laughs) if there's nothing else you want to say about what i've been watching i think we should talk some dune because i want to talk some Dune. you want to talk some dune yes we oh my god i can't wait to talk dune hank 
All right, all right, all right. So everybody, that means it's time for our main review of the week, uh, Dennis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, so this is a movie that, as I mentioned up top, just came out. It's a you know 2021 movie. It's in theaters. It's on HBO Max. It's really easy to watch because it's streaming, which I appreciate uh, because I hate wearing masks and it sucks setting in, setting in a theater. I believe in wearing masks, to be clear, but my beard gets all <laughs> like moist from my breath and it's really unpleasant. Um, so anyway, really glad it's streaming. But we're reviewing Dune. Uh, <laughs> As for the format of our review, for anyone that's new here, we do our review in two segments. We start with the spoiler-free segment, where we don't spoil the movie, and then we give you a uh, pretty solid warning before moving into the spoiler-full section of the review, where we review it and we, are, we feel free to talk about plot points, you know, characters, etc. Now then, with that in mind, I'm going to launch us into the spoiler-free section of our Dune review. I am going to uh, preface this, this section with the IMDb blurb for the movie. It reads as follows. Feature adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. I actually kind of think that's a shitty blurb. I wish I'd picked another. <laughs> that is the blurb provided for Dune. So, for those of you that don't know, uh, Frank Herbert's novel Dune, I believe, was published in 1955, and it's considered to be one of the most important works in science fiction. Um, there are those that call it, uh, to science fiction, what Lord of the Rings is to fantasy. It's a really important, uh, really epic book. I am a huge fan of Dune. I've read uh, the book Dune probably four, five, or six times. Um, so I've, I've read a lot wow. of Dune. I've also read the entire rest of the series. There's six books written by Frank Herbert, wow. as well as a couple written by his son. I've even read the ones by his son, but they suck. Just read the Frank Herbert ones. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so I'm a big Dune fan, and I've been waiting for this movie for years. Uh, there have been there has been at least two adaptations before, a TV miniseries as well as a movie adapted by David Lynch. I don't think either of them do any justice to the book at all. I have been hurt by Dune before, and so I have been <laughs> anticipating this movie with bated breath. And uh, that's my background with Dune. With that said, I'm going to wait to tell you what I think about it um, and <gasps> pass off to Keegan. Keegan, oh, no. what's your background and how did you feel? Wait, so to be clear, you've watched both the TV miniseries and the David Lynch version? Oh, yeah. Okay. This is perfect. I So I actually have nothing. I, I know many people that love Dune, like yourself, um, and I've, I've read a lot of great think pieces on it, but personally, I've never read the novel. I just, it got delivered uh, by Amazon about two days ago, so I'm going to start soon. Uh, never read it myself personally. Um, never watched the David Lynch movie, despite him being one of my favorite directors. Um, and I generally knew very little about this movie. Uh, it's always something that I've wanted to dive into, but that is something that like very much intimidated me. Uh, I had heard in a Reddit thread a long time ago that this was a movie, or this, excuse me, a book that in the back actually has a little bit of an almanac so that you can understand the phrases of the world. And something about that really scared the shit out of me and just made me not want to ever read the book. And I really regret that because really like this movie but i'll get into that later uh suffice to say i have just absolutely no knowledge of any of this franchise 
Okay. But you really liked the movie. You you saw it and you you approved. Are we are we doing that yet? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So uh, I was very much anticipating this movie as well, uh, especially with with HBO's dual release. I don't know if that's going to happen next year. Uh, before getting into spoilers, I guess what I will say is that the at, at this point uh, it's now November first. The only movies that could potentially replace Dune as my favorite movie of the year are Matrix 4 or maybe West Side Story. But I'm pretty certain this is my favorite movie of the year. Maybe that'll change in the next month and a half, but I'm pretty certain it won't. Okay, so Keegan loved it. Now then, I have the more extensive background for Dune, and I am excited to announce that I wholeheartedly endorse this movie. This movie yes! I plan to rewatch multiple times, and it is hands down my movie of the years. And I just want to say, or my movie of the year, not years. Uh, maybe maybe several years. Maybe like three <laughs> or four years, honestly. Um, but uh, anyway, I loved Dune. I thought it did uh, great justice to the book. Um, it didn't follow the book scene for scene exactly, but there were parts uh, that it recreated with a great amount of faithfulness. Um, uh, and honestly, having read the book or the book several times, I would say that Dune, the movie by Dennis Villeneuve, is almost as, if not as faithful to Dune the book as the Lord of the Rings movies are to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, wow. which is a really high bar. I am very critical of film adaptations of books. Like I saw the dark tower and, uh, I almost didn't make it that year. <laughs> um, but, uh, anyway, I, uh, you know, I saw Aragon as a kid and uh, it just, it just ruined a lot of things for me. Um, you know, so anyway, I wholeheartedly endorse this movie. I think from a visual standpoint, it was absolutely stunning. They really clearly looked back to some of like the classic uh, science fiction artwork of you know the 50s, 60s, 70s, some of the classic Dune covers, um, which I appreciate, because that science fiction style has kind of gone by the wayside, um, and I don't think it should have. I think that this kind of like cool, epic, kind of monolithic sci-fi look is super awesome. Um, so I was glad to see that art was borrowed from for the movie. The sound design was great. The casting was phenomenal. This movie, it's got Oscar Isaac. It's got Jason Momoa. It's got Javier Bardem, Timothy Chalamet, just all these heavy hitters. Zendaya. Um, it's got Rebecca Ferguson. Just star-studded cast. They all killed it. The visual direction was great. Um, and they didn't try to, and this is maybe a minor spoiler, but I'm going to say it because you deserve to know. They didn't try to shove the entire novel into one movie. They only covered part of Dune the novel, which I think is the best choice they could have made. Uh, because, honestly, it's not a story that I think would fit easily into two and a half hours or even three hours. Um, so yeah. I am in love with this movie. I plan to rewatch it multiple times, and I am waiting very expectantly for Dune Part 2. And hopefully, I would love to see Villeneuve uh, adapt uh, books 1 through 6. My guess is he's only adapting the first book, um, but, you know, if he wants to, you know, do two-part films for the entire series, I'll be here for it. Well, so here's my question in that. So uh, it, it's been announced that he's going to do... The second movie has been fully greenlit by Legendary, so we're going to at least get 
the the entire first book of Dune, uh, which, like you said, had been crammed into the entire David Lynch movie. But Denis Villeneuve is has been talking. His negotiations is that he wants to be able to do the second book, Dune Messiah, because he thinks that you can't tell the entire story without telling at least at a minimum the first two books. So, from your experience being the the very well read person of this franchise, do you think books one and two, if one is spread over two movies and two is in one? Do you think those three movies are enough to tell a solid enough film representation of this story, or do you think you really need all six? Um, yeah, actually, it's it's a little bit of a complicated question, kind of depending on what you're into in your sci-fi. Um, I'm actually okay. of the opinion that you can tell a contained story with just the first Dune. Um, it's a more complete story if you include Dune Messiah. These are the, uh, the Paul Atreides saga. These are the ones that focus on the same main character. After that, we get some new protagonists. We get some, some big time shifts uh, on the scale of like time shifts that I think you'd see in like Asimov's Foundation. I don't know if they happen in the TV series Foundation, but they definitely happen in the book. Big time shifts. Um, and things get a little bit weird, books three on. Um, I would love to see him tell the, the first two. I think that's a really complete story. Um, expanding beyond that, I would consider kind of doing like what Clone Wars did for Star Wars. Like it really deepens gotcha. the lore. It kind of gives you like some idea of like what happened after. Um, so I'd love it both ways. I think that his, his proposed approach sounds great to me. That will be a complete story. I have no qualms if that's where it ends. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. cool. Good to know. I, I've read a couple uh, back of the books to understand uh, that, that I think at least Messiah sounds like it's it's a pretty complete story. So cool enough. Okay. So, um, a couple other things I just want to touch on real quick. Uh, all, all, the, all the effects, the sets, the costumes for this movie, impeccable. Like, I, one of the few movies in recent memory that I haven't even glanced at my phone at for. Like, people were texting me, and I was like, fuck off. I don't care. Um, it looked phenomenal. The art direction was amazing. Uh, really loved all of it, especially the sandworms. <laughs> Such an important part yes. of Dune. Everyone knows about the sandworms. They're in the promotional material. They looked exactly as I imagined when I read Dune. Like, when, when I read the description of, like, what a worm attack looked like, this movie just put it, like, from my mind's eye onto screen. Um, I could not be happier with it. Did you, how did you, you liked the visual direction, I assume? Oh, I absolutely loved it. I, uh, I really liked the Harkonnens. I, I I'll try to stay out of spoilers, but the Harkonnens are absolutely terrifying. I, I just think this is, it's such, like, it feels so otherworldly. Like, it, it's, I think we've seen a lot of science fiction that starts to feel very similar, right? Like, where I, I think Ridley Scott's Blade Runner set a precedent that gets adopted by a lot of movies, right? Like, Matrix. We kind of have this understanding of what sci-fi should look like. But it's crazy to think of, like, science fiction in a way that's, like, both futuristic but kind of kind of primal right like we have the fremen who are very very like old school they're they're like nomads but they also have these like crazy devices and these still suits that help them drink water it, it's a really really cool combination of effects that i think come from the book obviously but are portrayed in a way that like visually are, are so interesting right like i don't think i've seen ships that look like this like like blimp the idea of blimp ships it's so like to our understanding, we we have blimps in our real world. Like obviously, like a, a giant airbag makes a ton of sense in in the world or in any world, right? But add that in with like 
helicopters that look like dragonflies. Like it's it's just it's such an awesome world, dude. And I think it's physically portrayed in a way that like you had drawn this comparison of like uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, but what a workshop gets a lot of of props for the work that they did on that series and like the the stuff that's done here is is just as realistic. So yeah, I can't get enough of the ship design and, and the world design. It's production design is absolutely phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, uh, one other thing I just want to call out while we're on this note is the uh, the Bene Gesserit like uh, spherical ship. You know the one I'm talking about. Yes. There's a yep. very it's it's featured in some of the promotional materials. There's a spherical ship, and when I saw it, I giggled because it is straight off of the cover of at least the my copy of the sixth book chapter house dune um they literally an image you know from like the 70s or 80s of this ship that is now being depicted on screen and you know 4k glory um what a triumphant film i uh i i'm gonna start moving us out of spoilers or out of non-spoilers just because i think i'm just gonna keep glowing while we're here are you okay with that keegan yeah, I'm going to grab another beer. I will be right back, but I cannot wait okay. to talk spoilers. Fantastic. Then with that, we're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, we're going to spoil the hell out of Dune. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, hit, hit a pause, go watch it. I'm not even going to say if you don't think you're going to want to watch it, then to keep watching, because you want to watch Dune. You should watch Dune. So if you haven't seen it, pause this, go watch it. <laughs> um, if you have seen it, continue watching uh we're going to tell you our opinions if you have taste you probably already know them um but we'll figure it out anyway and we'll be right back and we're back so it's time for us to spoil 2021's dune i'm really excited keegan's really excited if you haven't figured it out we're really excited about this movie so uh i'm just gonna start us off uh kind of right at the beginning the movie opens with about 30 minutes of stuff that's actually not directly in the book. Um, we get uh, scenes of Duke Leto Atreides uh, kind of receiving his summons to Arrakis. We see the Harkonnens grumbling about leaving Arrakis. We get all of this kind of uh, buildup. Um, the book actually starts uh, kind of shortly after this has all happened, kind of right before the arrival on Arrakis. Um, now then some diehard fans might be like, we should have started right where the book started, but I actually think that it made a lot of sense to kind of start with this background where we're just kind of like driven around all the characters because there's a lot going on and it, it, I think it serves the movie well to introduce it early on as well as to show us kind of like the major locations we're going. How did you feel about that, uh, that kind of opening sequence, Keegan, when everything was just being introduced and the background was being delivered? Uh, for myself, as someone that's very unfamiliar with the source material, I think it was very helpful. The idea that we're going to introduce Arrakis and Spice and the Fremen and the fact that the Harkonnen have been here for so long and they're ruthless leaders, right? All of this is, is stuff that I would never have known that getting a few pages into the book, I start to understand that it makes sense to start from a different perspective there. But given that we only, right, in two and a half, two, two hour and 45 minutes, it seems like a long movie. But there's a lot of ground to cover there, right? So it makes a lot of sense to give 30 minutes of just pure, I won't call it exposition, but we got to get familiar with this world. Um, and so it didn't affect me in the slightest. Uh, it, it definitely, it's not hurt by the fact that Zendaya has a very listenable voice. Uh, it's a very nice narration that we get up front with the introduction of Arrakis and Spice. 
so yeah, I, I had no problems with it uh, whatsoever at all. I, I can't imagine that even as someone that's like a diehard fan of the book, you'd be like, oh, what? this is, we should start from here. We should start right as Paul is waking up and watching the Bene Gesserit witch watch him sleep. Uh, I think, you know, just thematically, there is stuff that works out better and, and starting it out by introducing Arrakis works a lot better. Yeah, I actually totally agree. I think that starting the movie with the actual events at the start of the book would have been a bit jolting uh, for a cinematic experience, and I totally think this is appropriate. They didn't, like, you know, change up the beginning, really. They just kind of... These events were all implied to have happened in the book. We just don't really get the same level of detail that we get in the movie, and I love that. I also love that we open uh, with a Fremen character speaking. Um, because yeah. the, the book does not open that way. It opens with one of the, the members of the noble houses uh, talking. And I actually think that the, 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 the Fremen perspective is, is a little bit more interesting than the noble houses. I, I think that uh, it kind of sets the tone for the actual events that are going to happen later uh, better. So I, I really love this intro. Um, and uh, I, I love getting, you know, kind of taken around to Caladan and Gieti Prime and Arrakis, getting to see all these different places in the Imperium. We got some detail on, like, how expensive it is to do interstellar travel. Like, all these important world-building details were pretty artfully thrown in, so you're getting a good feel for what kind of a world we're in. And I really loved it um, because it really paints how different the world of Dune is from some other sci-fi that's made it big. Um, and so what I'm thinking about specifically here is uh, kind of the two big names in on-screen sci-fi, Star Wars and Star Trek. Um, Star Wars is really pretty strongly inspired by Dune, but it is still a very different work. Star Trek is less uh, directly inspired by Dune. Um, but in both those universes, it seems to be pretty easy to get around places. Um, you know, we yeah. see like these like you know faster-than-light jumps all the time in both series. Um, in Dune, they make a big point early on of saying, like, wow, like, how expensive was it for them to fly here? And they talk about, like, how many millions of units of, like, the galactic currency it was. And I just love, like, right off the bat, we're getting, like, that sense of difficulty that you don't get from a lot of other sci-fi works. Like, they're saying, like, yeah, we're really advanced, but, you know, like, there's still some stuff that's weird. Um, anyway, I just thought it was a fantastic intro for, for the movie, especially because, you know, the movie doesn't have that glossary Keegan was talking about in the back. Like, if you get confused, you can't flip to that, that back, uh, back section. So, uh, I loved it. Moving yeah. One of the other things oh. I think was really interesting... Oh, sorry to cut you off, but another thing that's super early in the movie that I thought was really interesting is, like, you know, it's a great comparison against, like, Star Wars and Star Trek, and those are movies that... I think I don't want to sound like a snob, but I, you hear a lot of these comparisons of like hard science fiction and soft science fiction, where kind of like the rules don't matter. Like Star Wars, right? We can we can jump between planets, or we can jump through this like comet asteroid field with giant space worms, and it's all very silly. And you don't really have to think about like what is this space worm actually eating, as opposed to you're dropped straight into Dune, and you are seeing the idea that like spice is a resource that is very finite and like very important to this world. And just physically, one of the coolest shots as we're showing that is a bunch of Harkonnen ships. And we do this a lot throughout the movie. But you see a bunch of Harkonnen spaceships, and the the, the perspective of it is, is you have the planet, but as opposed to being like 
the orb is is upside where you're seeing like the concavity of it you're seeing it almost upside down but the ships are right side up it's this really cool premise where like the ships are almost upside down relative to the pre to the planet and we see that a lot throughout the movie and i just thought like visually it was so so striking yeah i don't think i have seen a depiction of like you know high science fiction space travel or just you know vehicles in general that i liked as much as this dune because you know dune it takes place uh in the year like ten thousand and some hundred years you know it's like eight thousand years in our future and everything looks so different from something we'd have today like they don't have anything that you know looks like a space shuttle they have like these big donut spaceships and orbs and it, it's all, I said this earlier, it's all kind of like calling back to this kind of more classic science fiction illustration style that I love. And I love to see uh, just all the ways this movie kind of went back to this more classic style while still keeping it modern. Like it didn't feel like I was watching like a retro futurism piece, um, even though we were, we were referencing these more kind of uh, retro visual touch points. Um, just yeah. all super cool stuff. Um. So, but moving on from that, that kind of like first introduction to the world, another thing I liked, and this is a little bit more directly from the, the book, but we get several shots of, of Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul, listening to uh, like audiobook recordings about the, the planet Arrakis. And uh, first of all, it, like this is actually an important character trait is that he, you know, studied Arrakis before coming there. Um, but it's really helpful to the viewer. Like, I, I thought this was, like, a really nice organic way that was, like, really fitting for the character to throw an info dump into a movie. And uh, so many other movies, I'm like, why would someone be saying this out loud? Um, and even when they're, like, putting educational text in the film, I didn't feel that with Dune, um, which I think is just really testament to how well they considered everything that was included. Um, that said... Uh, once we get to Arrakis, finally, uh, Keegan, how did you feel about kind of like those those first few scenes of everyone getting settled in? You know, uh, Paul meeting the gardeners, Duncan Idaho returning from the Fremen. Like, how did that strike you? Hank, how much time do you have? Because I, I, I'm willing to even go back to Caladan stuff, dude. Okay, uh, we can go back to Caladan. Okay, so because... The thing I, I was really interested in was the, the first sequence with the Bene Gesserit. That's, I, I think, where the book opens, where uh, Paul's sleeping. He's waking up by Dr. Yue, and, you know, Dr. Yue and his mom, is it Lady Jessica? Um, yeah, Jessica. And he's led in... Okay, so, yeah, Lady Jessica and Dr. Yue lead him into the library where, uh, like, I think she's called, like, her reverence, but clearly a high order of the Bene Gesserit. And she tells him there's a test for him. She, you know, holds a needle, the Gonjabar, against his neck and says, you know, if you flinch after putting your hand in this box, I'm going to kill you with this needle. What a sequence, by the way. Because it, it's, I, I think there is a lot, like you had said, of, of having a book adaptation that's very difficult, right? And I think a lot of the stuff, I haven't read the book all the way through yet, but I think there's so much with Paul's psyche and so much of the visions and dreams that he's having that are so hard to depict on film. And like the idea of putting your hand in a box that hurts you so bad, like excruciating pain, as a director, how would you even think of showing that on screen or like what the Bene Gesserit nun would look like? All of it is, is such a high order. So it's it's such an interesting, intense scene. Um, 
And I think it really establishes Lady Jessica's character too, right? Because she's standing outside the door and she's clearly like, yes, she's Paul's mother, but she's also like a, a space witch who's a member of the Bene Gesserit and she has to like listen to her son go through agony. It's such an interesting scene. What did you, as a book reader, what did you think of that whole sequence? So this scene was actually kind of the scene that convinced me. Like I was enjoying the visuals up to that point, but I was like, I don't know if this yeah. is going to be Dune or just a really cool sci-fi movie. Um, but this scene is directly lifted from the book and I just loved it. Like, the kind of tenseness reminded me of the book. You have Lady Jessica uh, doing the, uh, the Bene Gesserit mantra, fear is the mind killer. That's such an iconic quotation from the book. Just this whole scene was put together in such a way that I'm like, okay, you know, it took us a while to get here, but this is something I directly remember from the book, and they've done it so well, and I totally agree with what they've done leading up to this. So I loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, just in general, the depiction of Caladan, <laughs> the storms, the water, just in such stark contrast to Arrakis, that is something that's touched on in the book. And I think that they really delivered that contrast well. The, the, this is just such a completely different environment the Atreides are coming from. Um, and I think it would have been easy to just never even show Caladan, because that's a whole new set of art you need to do, yeah. you know, probably new outfits and everything. Uh, but they went for it, and I, I love it. Yeah, the book describes it as like a cool sweat on a planet, which is it's so cool. You think of like condensation, you think of this kind of like tropical, very rainy. But for us, we're all in the Northwest, right? So we can imagine like this very kind of rainy, like very uh, green, lush environment. It's so cool, dude. I Yeah, I loved it. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about from Caladan that I think is like, one of the one of the coolest things and very much, I don't know if this is based in the book, so I guess it's more of a question to you, but the, the relationship between Duke Leto and Paul is such an interesting and refreshing relationship or portrayal of father-son relationships that we often don't see in movies, right? Like, a lot of times we have, like, even in Star Wars, we have a very, like, dysfunctional story of father and son. Or I, I just don't think that, you know, modern cinema or even specifically, like, science fiction movies have had such an interesting grasp on what it is to have, like, a a loving, functional relationship between father-son in a way that Duke Leto and Paul do, right? Where, where Duke Leto says, yes, you know, in a way we are grooming you to take over this position as someone who is going to rule over Arrakis, but also, even if you don't undertake the call to be a leader, you're just my son, and that's all I've ever wanted you to be. Like, oh my god, what a what an absolutely, like, beautiful omission of or you know admission of love between father and son that i thought was so beautiful like and within the first 20 minutes alone too like we already kind of established this so i thought that was really moving uh is this similar to the book did that affect you oh oh yeah i mean like the the father-son relationship between paul and leto it's like one of the important like emotional you know threads throughout the book the book follows paul's character the movie follows paul's character and you know obviously one thing he feels strongly about is what happens to his father spoiler alert he dies um <laughs> at the hands of the harkonnens who are their you know their their uh generational enemies um so i love the way the movie depicted it also though is the relationship between paul and his mother jessica it's very different because Jessica is not just his mom. She's a very important, essentially a spy for a very high-ranking, um, like, religious organization, the Bene Gesserit. And 
we get this taste early on of the Bene Gesserit, you know, kind of being like, yeah, we've been to Arrakis, we've done, you know, we're doing the missionary work so that when you come, you'll be seen as saviors. And I really loved how they called that out in the movie, because it, it, it is an important part of the book is that the Bene Gesserit were here first. Um, but the way they call it out in the movie, uh, it, it, it makes it really clear that this isn't really just about Paul coming to Arrakis and being some sort of a savior. This is like a social engineering thing where like the Bene Gesserit, including his mother, have had like some amount of deciding of like, yeah, we're going to go to these people and we're going to breed superstition and then we're going to bring them a savior. Like it, I think that just in that beginning part where they're talking about, you know, the Bene Gesserit going to Arrakis before the Atreides, um, it really kind of serves to key the audience in that like this is a very different science fiction story than your Star Trek and your Star Wars. This isn't, you know, like black and white, good and bad. This is, you know, a lot of diplomacy and guile going on. Um, so I, I just think this whole opening sequence really did a lot of justice to the book, um, even where it wasn't, you know, one-to-one -one scene recreations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So... I uh, want to, in the interest of time a little bit, I do want to skip forward a little bit here um, to the destruction of Arakeen. Um, so we're skipping over kind of some of the, the initial moments on Arrakis where, you know, uh, Paul meets the gardener, the, the people are getting settled in, they meet a couple of the local Fremen. These are all important scenes. I really loved how they introduced the characters. But I think what's most interesting to talk about is the Harkonnen and Sardaukar just decimating the capital city where the Atreides lived. Um, so first of all, super striking scene. They just drop out of orbit and immediately fire missiles into the city. They're just blowing the city to bit. It's this huge spectacle. As an audience member, like, as spectacular as any action movie I've seen this year. And yes, I did see F9. Um, <laughs> yeah uh it, it, when this scene hit like how were you feeling like it, it's pretty jarring did it catch you off guard were you into it like how did it how did it hit you as someone that didn't know it was coming all right here is my one negative for the movie is that 100 percent of the asian characters in dune are bad guys and distrustful, deceitful, yellow peril characters. <laughs> and I will get off my soapbox right there. Um, the betrayal of Dr. Yue, I feel like, you know, we're told he has a wife who's being held by Baron Harkonnen. We don't see that. I'm assuming that is covered more in the book. So I will kind of excuse some of that. Uh, but he is kind of an archetype, archetypal character with his little cheesy mustache, but whatever. I will let that slide because I love the movie so much. Uh, visually, when we have the Harkonnen attack, that Harkonnen warship that just unloads like 300 missiles or whatever it is, like it looks like this blimp that just drops projectiles. It is uh, it is one of the most daunting things I've seen in cinema, let alone, let alone like a science fiction movie. It's like even in the new Star Wars movies where we have huge Disney budgets, we do not see anything even close to the like level of decimation and loss of life you can imagine is happening from this Harkonnen warship. Like a blimp that just unloads on an entry point. And it's it's so interesting too, because like it shows that the Harkonnen are not only interested in taking over this planet, but they just want to like embarrass House Atreides because like they are destroying the things that they will need when they take over the planet again, right? Because 
the most important thing that they need on that planet are to be able to farm spice and to be able to ship it off world so to to blow up your entire like airport is just absolute insanity so like the entire just portrayal of brute force and like bomb droppings and just absolute brutality of their soldiers is uh and, and the the emperor soldiers as well that are dressed in white is uh it's brutal man it's it's absolute insanity and uh visually very striking yeah visually striking absolute insanity um and it's kind of sudden in the movie just as it is in the book you know i love that you know we go from like kind of like a slightly tense nighttime scene to a full-out decimation of a city and like the snap of a fingers once the first missiles fly it is full throttle for a bit just yeah. really loved the pacing there. I've read a few reviews that said that they think the pacing was too breakneck. And I'm like, you either need to have it be this breakneck or produce a four-hour movie that covers the same events. You know, <laughs> like, I think that yeah. the pacing was totally appropriate, and I loved it. Um, I also want to call back to your, your comment about the latest Star Wars movies from Disney. And I'm just going to say, uh, this Dune movie is about a hundred to a thousand times as good as any of the sequel trilogy. <laughs> that is uh, that is the next uh, Patreon episode. I know we just said we're going to change the entire structure of the show. We will save that episode of, of battling about prequels v. sequels uh, for the future. I think the sequels are much better movies than the prequels. But uh, I guess... What we can agree on is that Dude is very good and the production value is much better than anything in Disney. And the fact that this movie was made for, I think, only $150 million versus the prequels, which all had a budget of around $200 million, is that's insanity, right? The fact that this movie looks so good. Uh, so I will find the common ground here, Hank, and I will agree with you that, that these movies look better than that. But uh, not that those movies, those being the prequel series or sequel series, are bad. <laughs> I mean, you know, regardless of how good or bad you think they are, I think that you need to agree that Dune is significantly better, not just in looks, but in every aspect than the sequels. All right, Hank, what's your favorite movie? I bet Dune's better. Let's not play this game, sir. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He just doesn't want to lose. Um, so <laughs> moving on. Um, there is actually uh, something that I, it's kind of like a detraction from me on the movie. It's pretty small, um, but as uh, Paul and Jessica are escaping in custody, uh, the destruction of Arakeen, we get uh, not our first glimpse, but one of our first glimpses of Jessica using the voice, which is uh, the Bene Gesserit yeah. kind of uh, mystical power of suggestion. I think they depicted it really cool uh, with like how, how it sounds and how it affects people, how it's kind of like almost like you go into a fugue state while you're... I think the depiction was fairly true to the, the books. But what I will say, and I, I, I don't know because I read the books before seeing the movie, is I feel like they could have introduced the voice maybe a little bit more. Because in the books, there was, de there was like a conversation about you know kind of what the voice could and couldn't do uh did you did you struggle with that at all as a new audience or when you saw them using the voice were you just like oh bam that's you know something cool that's mind control or whatever no not at all dude this is uh this is peak show don't tell right like this is uh we have kind of a sequence at the very beginning of of jessica saying like oh command me to hand you i don't know if it's like water or fruit or whatever but she's telling him like Paul, use the voice to make me hand you something. And he kind of does it. And it's it's a really cool way of exhibiting like 
you know, he can make her do things by using the voice. Um, oh, whoops. And then, you know, jumping later into the movie and watching Jessica, who's like an expert in using the voice, is really cool. So I had no problems with it at all. I didn't feel like I needed it explained at all. Um, and I guess I'll take a quick pause here. Hank, if you could choose to have the force or the voice, what would you choose? Um, that's a good question. The voice is way better than a Jedi mind trick for sure. Um, but the force has more than just the mind trick. You know, there's force push, force healing, force lightning, uh, all these force powers that we're, you know, aware of. Um, though I think, you know, I, Oh man, it's it's. It, I keep on thinking I have an answer, and then getting tripped up. Uh, I, I want to say the voice just because I like Dune more. But the thing is, I the thing the thing about the voice is you're going to get caught using it, you know. And like, you know, you can you can only command them, you know, so many times in a row before someone else comes in the room, you know. Um, so uh, I feel like the Force. I feel like it's a bit more of a, a versatile tool. Keegan's shaking his head. That's you not, disagree? That's not the right choice. The force is just like, uh, let me move this like laser sword over to my hand. Whatever. I I've, I don't think you're going to get electricity. I don't think you're going to get all the cool Sith powers or like healing like Rey does. The voice, dude. It's, it is the coolest thing ever. And we see Lady Jessica use it to escape these people. She's like, first Yeah, but of all, men can't use the voice, Keegan. Oh, is that is that a thing in the? I did not get that at all. So Paul is an outlier in that he's a man who can use the voice. Yeah, well, I, I shouldn't say men can't use the voice. Men aren't taught to use the voice. But Paul is an outlier because he's a man. There are no male Bene Gesserit. Um, oh, okay. So the space witches yeah. have the voice, but Paul, being like manufactured and, and bloodlines and all that stuff, he is whatever the the chosen one. He can use it. Mm -hmm. Where he's taught to use it. Yes. Um, so anyway, you know, I feel like if the voice existed, I don't have a shot at getting the voice. I'm not the chosen <laughs> one. I've I've seen my family trees. It's all random. Um, so, <laughs> my mom's uh, no Rebecca Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I didn't say that, mom. Um, but, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm still I'm sticking with the force, and uh, you you can suck it, Keegan. <laughs> <laughs> all right fair so enough. i i will say uh i do think the bene gesserit are the cool the cooler uh uh science fiction religious order uh when compared to the to the jedi and the sith the bene gesserit are oh my dope. god um, absolutely and i feel like transitioning that's actually hammered home by the fact that even the isolated desert people in dune the frontmen uh recognize when the Bene Gesserit are, are around. You know, there's a moment where uh, they're telling Jessica she can't stick around with them. This is later in the movie. And then she shows off some of her super cool skills, and they're suddenly like, oh, wait, you're a, a weirding woman, which is, you know, a way of saying a space witch. And uh, they're like, actually, you're cool. You can stay. Um, and, you know, to, to have, like, that much reach, that much uh, notoriety, even with, you know, these incredibly isolated desert people, uh, just what what a cool aspect of some secretive order. Um, yeah, I really liked that. It's like yeah. the Illuminati, but real. Or like it's like if QAnon was real. You know what I mean? You'd be like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, but uh, yeah, just really enjoyed that. So, moving on, even again a bit further. 
wanted to ask you more about the sandworms. Um, so obviously the sandworms look cool. We're agreed there. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. It's like what is what is the the Starlack pit? That that has mm-hmm. to be a direct inspiration, right? Like the the giant mouth that just consumes people. Like Yeah. After seeing Dune, there's no way that it's like it makes me like Star Wars less because I'm like, man, this is just direct copying. It's the sandworms are like the coolest shit I've ever seen in my life, and like we've seen it before. Like I feel like even before the Via New version of this, the sandworms were like a big part of pop culture, and uh, like <laughs> I know you're gonna hate me for this, but like tremors, like this idea of like sandworms that eat people are pretty present in our pop culture. Um, yeah, these are these are horrifying, and they are so much bigger than I ever anticipated. And they actually lead to what I think is the most tense sequence in the entire movie, where we're seeing this giant spice farmer, and then all of these like dragonfly ships descend on it because it blew one of its like attachment points. And there is a a, a sandworm large enough to consume what is essentially like one of those Tatooine farmer ships, like. It, it's like an apartment complex that it can like consume in one bite. These things are absolutely terrifying. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Absolutely terrifying. And they're such a big part of Dune. You know, you can't talk about Dune with a Dune fan without talking some sandworms. It just won't happen. Um, I, I won't spoil anything in the later books, but, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of sandworm lore, okay? Um and I just love to see them depicted just exactly as I imagined them. The sandworm attacks, you know, just the maw opening out of the desert. Amazing. And the sandworm chase with Paul and Jessica escaping to the rock and finally seeing one rear out of the sand. Loved it. And I have a suspicion um, that uh, maybe we haven't even seen a big one yet. Um, but really? uh, that's all I'll say there. But uh, yeah, loved the sandworms. And I think, you know, as an avid Dune fan, hopefully speaking to other avid Dune fans, like that's that's high praise for this movie. The sandworms are fantastic. Um, we are starting to run a little bit long, but there are a couple more things I want to talk yeah. about. Um, so first of all, Actually, I'm deciding what order to tackle these in. Okay, so I guess first of all, how about the uh, the still technology, the still suits, the uh, still tent um, that Paul and Jessica stayed in? How fucking rad, right? For a movie set in the desert, like I, I love oh that God, these yeah. questions are things they think about. Like, how do we deal with water? They depict like the Fremen's uh, greeting of like spitting on the ground as a sign of honor. Um, they just depicted these like cultural and environmental things so well. Uh, how do you like him as a new viewer? I love it, dude. And I love this idea of like water scarcity and like the excess and privilege of owning 20 palm trees. Or is it 10, 20? But like the idea that you have all these palm trees lining your castle and you have a guy that's like, yeah, I water these every day and each tree could five, could could provide enough water for five Fremen every single day. And then Paul goes, well, why don't you just not water the trees and give it to the Fremen? He goes, oh, well, well, these have been here a long time, so we got to honor these trees. And ultimately, it results in nothing because they burned down during the attack by the Harkonnen. But it's just this idea that, like, you know, spice is, is a scarcity across the entire universe. But to uh, Arrakis, like, water and, like, even the water that you sweat or urinate is this, this finite substance that you should never give up and one of the coolest sequences is when the ecologist is running away from a bunch of the like white stormtroopers the the emperor like super high class soldiers and she's standing 
She's trying to call one of the worms to kill her, and then she gets stabbed in the back by one of the, the Emperor-class soldiers. And instead of seeing, like, a red blood spurt, you see, like, water erupt. And you go and instantly, because you understand this world, you go, oh, my God, that's a bad thing. Because, like, all of her water sources pouring out of her spill suit or still suit and you know she's just gonna die now like what a cool idea that you would see someone stabbed and not even see like you just see water pour out and you instantly know like that's such a precious precious resource this person's gonna die you think she was calling that worm to kill her anyway let's move on um <laughs> but uh okay. last thing that i want to talk about in some detail is the ending fight scene uh between uh jummies and paul uh, it's, you know, Paul's never killed a man until now, ends up killing this guy. Um, so I'm gonna, uh, I'm just gonna throw out, like, a quick little criticism here, not of that scene. Um, the fight scenes for this movie, I felt were a little bit, uh, over-choreographed or choreographed differently than I would've. Uh, they're very acrobatic knife fighting. Um, the way it was described in the book, I had kind of imagined it being a little bit more slow and methodical due to the personal shields. Um, but anyway, gotcha. I wasn't a huge fan of all the, the fight scenes. Uh, I didn't hate them. They just you know, didn't land for me as well as some of the other excellent elements in the movie. But this fight between Paul and Jamis, are, uh, it's, a, it's very important. It's a very important fight. It involves uh, Paul taking his place as a Fremen. And... Given, like, the earlier fight scenes, I wasn't expecting much from it, but I thought they killed it, like, interspersing Paul getting these visions. They had it be very slow until kind of, like, that final hit. You know, it's kind of one hit, one kill sort of fight. This was such a great end point for the movie for me. It was climactic. Excuse me. Climactic. It was well shot. It was thematically very intense. How did it land for you? Did it close out the movie nicely for you? <laughs> yeah, I... And I, again, I don't know what happens in the second half of this book, but I think this is as good a place as the need to wrap things up um, with Paul, you know, almost kind of denying his Bene Gesserit mother and being like, no, my place is here with the Fremen. And I think there's more story for me here. Uh, it's really interesting. And I, I the fight itself is fine. Um, I think, like you said, I don't necessarily buy into the idea of timothy chalamet being a very <laughs> good martial artist or fighter uh i i think we're the same age and i think he weighs probably 110 pounds like i can't imagine a 40 year old large man uh as janice would have any problem taking this guy down uh but regardless uh for story elements he does and uh yeah i think it's it's pretty impactful it's pretty hard to watch um, and I also think I sent you guys a meme about this, but it's really funny that uh, the Fremen are so like in their ways that uh, who is it? The the main guy could have this like lifelong relationship with Janice, and then watch some random guy kill him and be like, "All right, man, you wanna you wanna join our crew? I know that was my best friend, but uh, I think you're in because you won our you won our warfare uh, fighting <laughs> ritual." So again, I, it's it's a little weird to watch from modern eyes, but uh, yeah, the fights the fights pretty hardcore, man. Yeah, I I think it was a great place to end the movie. Um, I feel like anywhere else would have been kind of an awkward uh, spot uh, for doing a two parter. I think they picked a great one. Um, it's it's great. It's transitional. It, you know, it shows us kind of transitioning into the more Freeman or Fremen centric story. Super into yeah. it. Um, I am personally pretty ready to rate this. Uh, do you have anything else you want to go over? 
I want to say that we will in in future years in 2023 we will be reviewing the second part of this movie uh one criticism one criticism that i've heard of this is that it uh is a bit of a white savior story and it is a story of like house atreides moving into this this world of fremen and modernizing them and helping them out in ways that they couldn't themselves uh and although i haven't read all the books after reading, you know, a lot of think pieces on this, as I understand it, and as I'm sure Hank can elaborate on further, I don't think that is the case for this franchise, and I think that this is very much a Fremen story. So if that is something that, you know, you watch this movie and it turns you off, I would say I think you should probably stick with it, and I think Villeneuve is enough of a storyteller where he will probably dive into those more Fremen-centric elements of the of the story in future, future movies. So am I off base there, or did you... You know, think this is a little uh, bit of a Dancing with Wolves? Yeah, I don't think this is a white savior story, having read the whole series. Um, so uh, there's two reasons why, and I won't go into too much detail. Um, one reason is that I think uh, in some ways this is more of a story of the, the Fremen conquering than it is of the conquerors conquering. I think that the Fremen kind of end up superseding the other cultures here. Um, but also, mm-hmm. I think that everything uh, that is brought to the Fremen from the outsiders, the Harkonnens and the Atreides, is terrible. I do not think that they are being saved. Um, and I don't think that Frank Herbert thought they were being saved when he was writing the books. Um, I think that if you say it's a white savior story, that, that sounds like a fairly surface level analysis uh, by someone that doesn't know the source material that well. Um, you know, if there's some scholar that wants to disagree with me, uh send it to the email i'll probably ignore it um because i've I've read the books enough times i feel pretty confident in my read um but uh anyway yeah i don't i don't think that if you're familiar with the source material and they stay true to it that that argument holds a ton of water water get it (laughs) um i don't think it holds a lot of still suit yeah Uh, um all right anyway keegan why don't you uh lead us off with a rate I didn't even prep anything for this. I was just so excited to just gush over this movie that I didn't even prep a uh, a rating. So let me try to come up with that on the spot. But uh, it's pretty clear that I think both of us absolutely adore this movie. I was pretty nervous. Uh, I had heard historically that this would be a movie that's really hard to adapt. I really liked Blade Runner 2049, so I was I wanted with all my heart to believe that Denis Villeneuve could be the guy to make this work for the ma- for the big screen. And uh, he did it. He absolutely pulled it off, in my opinion. Uh, And I I just thoroughly love this movie. So I have no fun or witty way to say this, but this is a five out of five star for me. I adore this movie. I've watched it multiple times on HBO Max. I know that I will keep this playing in the background. Uh, Like I said, I'm writing for Collider now. I have a couple papers I have to finish by the end of the week. as soon as this, this recording's over, I gotta get back to writing, and I know that uh, Dune is gonna be playing in the background. So I I adore this movie, I can't stop watching it, um, and, and I think it's it's a near perfect movie. Hank, where do you come in on this? Yeah, so, you know, I, uh, I try not to just glow up on things because I love the source material, um, but Dune did a lot of honor to the source material. I think that it is going to be remembered as one of the classics of science fiction um, much the same way the original Star Wars was. I'm not talking like Phantom Menace where we look back at it and like we hated it at the time, but now we have the Clone <laughs> Wars and we're like, yeah, yeah, no, trust me, he was worth. No, this is going to be 
one of the foundational pieces of science fiction film, you know, probably like 50, 100 years from now. I think this is that good. Um, I don't think that fans of the novel could have asked for a better adaptation. I don't think we have a lot of instances of of book book adaptations being better than this. Uh, It's it's just that good. Um, And uh, because of that, I'm also going to eschew the... uh, the funny rating scale. I'm just going to give this a 10 out of 10. Go watch Dune. It's really Ooh. good. It's really, really good. I plan to watch it multiple times, and I'm not a huge fan of uh, of rewatches this close after release, but I'm going to do it. So uh, that's my endorsement. Oh, so happy to hear that. Hank, two reviews where Taylor wasn't here, and we just... We've never been so in sync. What a way to wrap up this format of the show than Hank (laughs) and Keegan being a near-perfect unison. (laughs) We finally found the movies we can agree upon. (laughs) It's it's really a a beautiful way to to close this format and bring in the new one. Um, That said, that means that we don't have a next week to announce at the end here. Um, What I will announce is, you know, keep your eyes peeled for the November episode of Rotating Reels. It's going to be that newsletter format like we discussed earlier. I think it's going to be real cool. We're going to have a review somewhere in there. We're going to have some interviews, probably some guest hosts. I think it's going to be neat, and I really encourage you all to check it out. Um, But with that, Hank out for now.